All right, so here we go. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 47. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii? worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. This is God's word. So this passage assumes something, and it achieves something. So before we get into the guts of the passage, I want to explain what I mean. This passage assumes something, that you wish to be used by God. The disciples come back from nothing short of their very first missions trip we see here, and they experience God speak and work through them. Mark's assuming his readers identify with the twelve. That you want God to speak and work through you as his messenger. So, He is not willing to have any business with those who don't want to be used by God. Mark assumes you've read what has led to their excitement in telling Jesus all they've said and done. That you've read verses 7 through 13 of chapter 6. That the apostles were used by Jesus, by God, before they were ready. Right? They didn't even know really who Jesus was. So they were plunged into the fire before they were ready. Perhaps you can identify with this. The apostles were also used by God, despite not everybody having the gift of evangelism. Most of us can identify with that as well. Hopefully you can also identify with tasting the excitement of God working through you as you worked to share what you had with others. And I hope you've tasted the excitement of God working through you as you shared with others. Maybe even walked or drove away saying to Jesus, what was that? That's amazing. Or thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. As he came through for you. I don't know how you first stepped out to be used by God. Perhaps it was simply going the extra mile for someone when everyone else said no to them. You know, maybe it was taking the extra time to to not say anything, but just listen, acknowledge what you've heard, and ask a good question of someone. Maybe a smile you shared, a meal you bought, a deed you did. 
But especially, especially when that moment arrives, you know this moment when the blood rushes outwards to every extremity because you know God is opening a door to share with somebody the good news about Jesus and you do it. You open your mouth and you barely know what's coming out. But it comes out and somehow it makes sense to the person. There's nothing like it. And by the way, you are doing it. I'm amazed at how many of you, you know, tentatively, yes, but surely inviting someone to a Christianity Explorer dinner group and seeing God come through. You're seeing it. You're seeing it happen. I found emails and notes from some of you guys, and some of you guys have told me just flat out, I'm inviting people, and they are saying yes. It's a rush. And you don't need to be a Christian, by the way, to want God to work with or through you as you work. All of us want to be part of of something bigger and more lasting. How many of you have been watching the Winter Olympics in Sochi? All right, wow, even a big, a big hurrah there. And yeah, it's been good times. And yes, I know, way to go, Canadians. I know you're very happy. That's right. <laughs> yes, we know you're good at hockey and curling. <laughs> oh, boy. I think the only way to watch the Olympics is through DVR, you know, to record it, because you can both skip commercials and those occasional events that tend to strangle the life out of you. Ice dancing. (laughs) I don't even know, by the way, until this Olympics, there was such a thing as ice skating. I already saw pairs figure skating. But now you get ice dancing, which you can't even jump in, right? And I've had to learn far too much about twistles. So I didn't have a DVR this week. I was in Florida at a church conference, so I had to watch commercials if I watched any Olympics at all, which I did. And one of the prominent commercials I saw quite frequently was this iPad Air commercial. I don't know if you saw this, but it basically, first of all, says if you want to live a productive life, you've got to have an iPad. That's debatable, but anyway, if you do have an iPad, you can do things like be a carefree child in a meadow, you know, ski some gnarly slopes or uh, basically rap in Japan. Any of these things you can do if you own an iPad. But people living productive lives, and you hear Robin Williams quote America's most, probably most well-regarded poet, Walt Whitman. And you hear this verse over and over again, and it probably gripped you the way it gripped me, I think. And he says, the powerful play goes on and you get to contribute a verse. He repeats his refrain again and again, and it's just absolutely gripping. The powerful play goes on, and you get to contribute a verse. In other words, you can make impact with how you live your life. You get to contribute to this history of life. And it comes, by the way, from this 1982 poem by Walt Whitman called O Me, O Life. I want to read a little bit of it to you. O Me, O Life, of the questions of these recurring of myself, forever reproaching myself for who more foolish than I and who more faithless, of the poor results of all, of the plotting and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest and the rest me intertwined, the question, O me, so sad and recurring, what good amid these, O me, O life? What, in other words, what good is this life I'm living? What contribution am I making? And the answer is, the powerful play goes on and you get to contribute a verse. You get to contribute something 
to this mass, this history, this monument of life. And all of us at some point have awoken to that question. And what good amid these is my life? What impact will I make? Or is it, as Whitman says, just poor results? And we all know that God would go a long way to make any noble action matter and endure. Any dream that would have impact endure. This passage also achieves something. So first of all, it assumes something. You want to be used by God. You want to have impact. Also achieve something, and that is balance. Balance according to Jesus. Balance is a word thrown out there a lot, that we throw out there a lot. A balanced diet, a balanced budget, a balanced bank account, earth balance, smart balance, pH balance, for a man or for a woman. <laughs> a balanced bracelet. I assume then you would need to to stay balanced. A new health center open near the brasserie nearby here called Balance, which no doubt will advise you for a fee how to find balance. But mostly, in our general... We're trying to achieve balance between work and play, or work and rest. And for that reason, Mark sets it so well here. Work and leisure, or leisure. And the ESV is brilliant here. A lot of translations, yours might say the same thing, that, that they found time to eat. No one found enough time to eat. But it's not like in chapter 3 when... The disciples and Jesus are gathering in his hometown. There's no room to eat. This word is eukareo, which is essentially an open period of time or free time. It has to do with how, how one spends free time, whether it's napping, watching television, whether it's our favorite hobby or reading a book by the ocean, whatever it might be. How do human beings going about achieving this kind of balance, such that they'll have leisure in their life. Thought of three ways. The first is to maximize work so as to maximize the degree we can indulge in leisure. In other words, work as hard as I can for as long as I can and with as much success as I can so that I can just totally go full force in how I spend my free time. The problem is, after a while, we wonder, is either extreme worth it? working as hard as we can, as much stress as we can endure, for as much pressure as we are under when we work, but also indulging. Indulging like King Herod in the last section of Mark we read, who makes a foolish cocktail wager, likely in drunkenness, that cost the life of Israel's first prophet in about 400 to 500 years. Another way we try to achieve balance, or at least some of us, is through control. Setting up an exacting schedule, routine, and having the corresponding discipline to follow it. And you know who you are, right? If somebody comes along and says, man, I really need help, but it's, ah, it's my fifth week of Pilates and I really should be there. Please don't frustrate my schedule. <laughs> you know who you are. And any alteration to your routine leads to frustration. Anytime life comes crashing into your routine, you get upset, you get frantic. A third way we try to achieve balance is just delegate the task to others. You rely on a product, whether it's a food or bracelet, experts, gyms, authors, popular personalities, 
who comment on balance or even a parent, spouse, or significant other. And so you're always willing to try something new, but the problem with that is it's because you're usually failing or you're trying something new all the time, so you're swinging to both extremes. Right? Sure, I'll try this. Maybe this will help my balance. Try this new program, diet, exercise thing, um, Bible reading here, this here. And so we try to get this balance. We're always trying something new. And so we're usually crashing and burning. What do all these methods have in common? They presume that I can both know and regulate what's best for me. That I know enough in my life. I'm big enough in my life that I can see all possibilities. And I know what is best for myself. But we don't know all possibilities. And we're not big enough to see the future and to see what might be better than what we've had planned for ourselves. In this passage, Jesus gives those who wish to work for him and to rest with him a way forward, a perfect balance. And here it is. In a nutshell, plan for balance, but satisfy yourself with whatever Jesus brings your way. Go ahead, plan to work for and be used by Jesus. Plan for rest with Jesus, but satisfy yourself with whatever Jesus chooses to bring your way because he is God and he is good. So let's look at that. First, plan to work for and be used by Jesus. Jesus' messenger program started here and was carried out through the early church, all the way through the early church in the book of Acts. And that program is going two, out two by two as messengers for Jesus, right? We see this all the way back in verse 7 that he called the 12. He began to send them out two by two to pray for people, to help heal people, and to speak good news about Jesus to people. And there is a place then for programs. There's a place for organizing and executing in the kingdom of God. A lot of us, even a lot of Christians, maybe even you, want to reference Jesus' long hair and his sandal wearing to fit with your image of him as some hippie whose words have an effect on you like yoga music. Or like a hipster, who would probably, if he lived today, choose a profession like a barista, right? Here's your latte, man. Have a great day. What if your religious leader, though, asked you to all sit in a certain place, and not outside that perimeter, and he assigned you certain people that would be assigned to take care of your needs, whether you like that person or not? You get into groups of 50s and 100s. What would you call that person? Hey, that guy's a micromanager. He's a little bit controlling. Right? Look at this, starting in verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. All right? So first of all, sit down in groups on the green grass. You can imagine this moment where people are just, they're a little bit in the stubble or in the weeds. Everyone... Get in the green grass, you're going to be most comfortable there. Trust me, this is for your good. So they sat in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, delegates. And he divided the two fish among them all. Jesus flowcharts. <laughs> he organizes. He delegates. He makes people a little bit uncomfortable. 
He's a little bit rigid even here. This is a good lesson for us as a church. We, we have a plan in place to facilitate God's use of you as you work for him. In other words, this stuff isn't just going to happen. God's given us leaders, and he's given wisdom, and he's told us to organize. And so we have regularly occurring ministries in which you can serve, share the message about Jesus, and watch him work. We have intentional seasons that leaders are called to pray on and set up. For God to use us. So, so we, we are right now linking arms and looking outward, inviting, serving, giving, inconveniencing ourselves to Christianity Explored. And we're, it's a season of giving over and above to serve the smaller saints of sunrise. Planning towards facility changes. But even relationally we do this. As you build a key relationship as a, at work. As, as you... Or with another mom in a mom's group, or you're in a sport, you're your own or a child, you all of us hopefully would wisely plan in relationships. You're probably going to want to pray, both prior and subsequently, to a conversation with someone. You're probably going to mentally prepare a couple questions for someone you're trying to reach for Christ. You're probably going to want to follow up with them with how you might start to present Jesus into that conversation. You're also going to want to strategize as to what other Christians you might want to be introducing that person to, who whom they might relate to. In other words, you plan even in relationships. And so we work for and we're used by Jesus in intentional ways. The problem is we also tend to be people who have grown to idolatrize busyness. Right, the Protestant work ethic run amok. Think about it. When someone, especially a work associate, maybe a client asks you, hey man, what's been going on? I, I bet you over half the time that we answer with a response of busyness, either, man, a lot, or, man, it's been busy. Things have been going crazy in my life. Or, even if things are content at a good pace, at best we might say, man, I'm good, but I'm busy. But it's a good kind of busy. Last week, a good friend, John Hamilton, donated this time and money to fly down here and serve us because he, he knows a lot about small groups, in particular uh, small groups that are focused on reaching others for Christ. And so he helped us prepare for this Christianity Explored initiative we're undergoing here. And we're having dinner beforehand as couples, uh, John, myself, Katie, and his wife. And John turned to Katie at one point and asked what she thinks of my strengths as a leader. What are Ryan's strengths as a leader? So after saying one nice thing, her second and final strength, I think, was rest. <laughs> Ryan knows how to rest. It's like, Rest? Come on, man. Dynamic leader, disciplined, <laughs> engaging, persuasive, <laughs> no rest. Now, first of all, this is further evidence. I clearly don't have all my life together. Right? I'm so vain that when my wife pays me a compliment, all I can think is, man, what's he going to think? He might think I'm shiftless, a sluggard. He might think I'm lazy. Even though she explained that Ryan's good about spending intentional time with his family, He's good about spending time on his own with the Lord and not having as part of the, as a professional pastor. Without even knowing it, though, I clearly made being busy into an ultimate thing, right? Into an idol. I had invested in it to 
the point where I wanted it to be part of my identity. I think this happens to a lot of us. We've made busyness part of our identity, both in the workplace, but even as Christians. So we need to plan for and be for, to work for and be used by Jesus. But we also need to plan time to rest with Jesus. What typically happens after a significant time of working for and being used by Jesus? Well, we have a fairly realistic model here. First, the need to regroup and spontaneously share, right? We see that in verse 30. They regroup and share with Jesus. Here's what's going on, Jesus. Here's how you used me, but I guess you know how you used me. <laughs> I want to share it with you anyway. Awesome moment. We need to do this, right? We need to do this for our sake, to write it down, or especially sharing it out loud. It cements the truth that God has, in fact, used you, because at times you're going to doubt that he has, even though he has. At times you're going to wonder, was that real? But sharing it with someone makes it more real. It cements the truth. But not only for your sake, for the sake of the sender. That's why those who go on short-term mission trips or long-term mission trips return to share what God is doing. And so on all of us whom we send as leaders in the church out into the community, share with the sender, share with your leaders, with your community group members, with people who support you. There is nothing like going to a community group, and hearing what God is doing through my friends there. It is so encouraging. It lights a fire under me. second thing we see here in this passage is there's a tendency to, when you're coming back from God using you in a profound and intense way, and you know and you recognize, man, he really used me here, is, is to go out again right away thinking you can automatically reignite that rush of being used by God getting right back out there. And what happens when we do this is we start to think that we're sufficient for the task and that others are enough to fill us, to make us whole. And neither is the case. Only God is sufficient. And only the work of Jesus Christ is enough to fill us and satisfies our souls. So Jesus here, when they come back, he emphasizes rest, the prospect of food, and the plan for leisure He says in verse 31, to come away, come away with me. Yet how many times have you lingered thinking, man, I'd rather be with people who can fill me up, who can tell me I'm good, who I can hear, I can touch, I can be near. He says, by yourselves. Yet there are some of you here who ache not to get away along with Jesus, for someone to come with you, to distract you. He says in verse 31, to a desolate place, not necessarily a beautiful place or your own personal spa, but rather a place with no distractions where you can just see his goodness, his beauty, his sufficiency. Finally, he says to rest for a while. Also in verse 31, plan sufficient time for rest. There's a reason the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exacting, not initially to be harsh on people, because we need a while, we need overnight, and into the next day. Also, plan for rest because Jesus planned for rest. Now, Jesus planned for rest here in this passage, but he was ever submission to his Father's direction, and he gets redirected. But that's not the end. Notice that he goes for it again. He, he plans for rest again. That's why we read verses 45 through 47. Immediately, he 
made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side of Bethsaida, he dismissed the crowd. How often do we dismiss the crowd in our lives? And after he had taken leave of the disciples, he went up to the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, but he was alone on land. Now, you'll recall that Jesus went away often to desolate places. And you might remember from chapter 1, in the busy moments of his life, he gets away to a desolate place early in the morning before anybody was up. Chapter 1, verse 37, but Peter comes along and says, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. That was okay for Jesus because he believed, he trusted interruptions were part of his dad's good plan. All of us, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but all of us need to plan for rest because rest rarely just happens, right? You need to plan for a downshift. For some of you, it would be, though, silly to plan even more than just a few things for a full day of rest because you're not planners. You're not organized. So be modest in your planning. Don't think that because you're not planning a full day, you can't plan a few things to make your day more restful. Maybe it's just, hey, I'm going to get to bed for my favorite TV show so I can get to that book and wake up refreshed. Maybe it's, I'm going to make myself a bigger breakfast. So far, I've covered sleeping and eating, so it's pretty simple. You know, plan to ride your bike and Bible to the beach. Plan to revisit that Bible passage. Pretty much no more than these sorts of things. No more than a few things if you're not a planner. And for some of you, it would be silly to think that your time with Jesus must be entirely alone. You're extroverted. You are energized for being around other people. The apostles, after all, here went away together. They likely enjoyed moments alone with Jesus on the boat, yes, but laughter primarily on the boat and the prospect of a table feast ahead. There's a togetherness. So it's okay to plan time with your best friend, to play, you know, plan to play a pickup game of football or basketball or an organized game of rugby or volleyball, to have a Skype session with your mom or dad or with a cousin or a friend. So plan for balance, but the God who's in charge of the universe and every detail of your life may, just may have something better. And that fits in with what we see in the wisdom of God, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. It's a consistent theme, but I'll give you just two verses. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to abundance, but the hasty person comes to poverty. In other words, it's good to plan. It's good to be diligent in your planning. It leads usually to good things. Proverbs 16.9, that reminds us, the heart of a man plans his way, but it's the Lord who establishes the steps. In other words, it doesn't say it's not a good idea to plan because God's going to change your plan anyway. Plan your way, but understand that God's going to establish steps according to his will, and we know that's often different from what we plan. Both are good, so do both. And that's what I'm saying here. The way to stay balanced, plan for rest, Plan to work for and be used by Jesus. But, here's the third point. Satisfy yourself with whatever Jesus brings your way. I mean, the plan here in this passage, Jesus clearly sets forth this for rest, but a greater plan prevails when the Father puts an opportunity to love others in their path. As we see in verse 33, Now many saw them going, And they recognized the apostles, and they recognized Jesus, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of him. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a lot like a large harbor, say, for a a big city, more than it was a, a massive sea. And so 
the boat was kind of ambled around, had a hard time making three-point turns. And so it's very possible that on foot, these people could have seen Jesus and the apostles and just seen the direction they're going in and gotten there. And then Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have a leader. Jesus is our model for trust. He satisfied himself with the Father's will, even though it was hard to submit to, even though it was hard to accept, even though there was even a time he didn't want it, or he wondered, or he struggled with it. But he satisfied himself with the Father's will, though if you notice and look at his life closely, his closest companions try to dissuade him the most from it. Here, they try to convince him, hey, send these people away to go in the countryside, the villages, and buy themselves something to eat. You might remember another, another day of them enjoying a sunset on the boat, another pleasant day, when a raging storm rises, and Jesus, they'd say to Jesus, hey, don't you care, Jesus? Why are you napping? Jesus was not just resting, but you might recall it was a premeditated rest for a premeditated storm. Jesus didn't just doze off randomly. He had taken a 100-pound ballast used to balance the boat, and he dragged it beneath the deck of the ship to sleep. Why? To show his disciples what it was like to trust God in all circumstances. No matter what God put before him, they could trust that he was meaning to work it for their good. So the two most popular miracles were among the least popular of those present. Had common sense and good judgment prevailed, they would have gotten their rest, and they would not have been under the threat of imminent death. But we have not have gotten the calming of the sea or the feeding of the 5,000 from a few loaves and a couple fish. In John 4, Jesus visits a well-known well in Shechem because he was tired and thirsty, not because he was planning to meet a woman in need. After speaking with her for likely hours, the disciples finally come looking for him. And they begin to urge him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat something. But he said to them, notice, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So disciples, still not convinced clearly, said to one another, uh, has anyone bought him anything to eat that we didn't know about? And Jesus says to them, guys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. That will satisfy me more than anything, Jesus is saying, in other words. So what I want to encourage you with, with Jesus as our example, treat the work or the rest that God puts in front of you as your food, your satisfaction as him giving himself to you through it. For the disciples at this point in their journey with Jesus, it was work. But he had a plan. He, he was giving his goodness to them through the work. But people still try to convince Jesus otherwise, that his, the human plan would be better, that common sense would make more sense. In fact, Jesus got his most opinionated rebuttals about the plan forward when he started to speak about dying the most humiliating and painful death ever known to a man, crucifixion. So the leader of the apostles, Peter, took takes him aside and words with him and said, Jesus, this is, this is a bad plan. Later when Jesus is arrested, Peter arms his rebuke with a sword and cuts off the arresting soldier's ear, still believing this to be a bad plan don't let them take you, Jesus. Don't let them harm you. They mean ill. Even Jesus has to ask the Father at one point, are you sure about this? 
Is this your will? Yet your will be done. And so the apostles still don't get it. They, they all run away. Peter denies having ever known and the religious leaders. They think they've won. They think their plan has prevailed. The government thinks they've won. Satan thinks his plan has triumphed, yet it's Jesus who wins because he submits to his Father's will, which is the food he eats. It satisfies the soul. Do you trust that Jesus knows best, wants your best, and is working your best? I know you need rest. You need your R&R. But what I'm trying to communicate this morning is God's will is our R&R. Too often we miss the rest he's offering us as we work for him. Maybe it's the person to whom you're ministering or pouring into. They end up saying something more profound. They end up doing something by faith more radical than you've ever done. Maybe it's the moment in the hallway or in the car having worked overtime and you could rest satisfied at your work and say, ah, this is, thank you, Lord, for the strength, uh, rather than gripe and moan, comparing yourself with others and how bad you've got it. Children's birthday parties, oh, man. I'll admit, I find them brutal. <laughs> oh, man, you don't necessarily plan for them. Oftentimes your spouse lets you know about them and you've forgotten. But... These are children joyously cackling, stuffing their faces with cake like it's an Olympic event, running and leaping into pools with their clothes on. It's like a picture of heaven. And yet we just want our kids to dry their clothes, to get the stuff off of their face. They're too loud. I'm confident after leading us in worship one Sunday, my friend Eddie O'Hara was ready to enjoy a restful afternoon with redemption and his daughter Dorothy. But instead, he got his pastor with a flat tire and he opened his van and there, as he opened his van, was like a portable A.L. Thompson's or Parker's. It was just, <laughs> just full of nuts and bolts and gear and I thought he might have an engine in there. The guy just went to work. And the irony is, I've never seen Eddie so joyous. He walked away with a bigger grin on his face than I've ever seen. And why? Because his food, his satisfaction was in doing his father's will. To have compassion on someone, in this case me. The disciples flat out were missing it. The R&R which Jesus was trying to satisfy their weary souls, they didn't get it. Look at verse 34, where it says, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Having scored a few victories, the twelve subtly stopped seeing themselves as sheep in need of leading. They think, oh yeah, we've made it. They didn't think, maybe, maybe we're sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things, it says in verse 34. Gordon McRae and I just touched down from a conference in Florida it had some good teaching, some really good, some okay. Imagine going to a church conference, a men's or women's retreat where Jesus is teaching. Man, are you listening? He's teaching now. We're going through his word. Are you listening? The disciples didn't want to. Then the irony, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, Hey, this is the desolate place. The hour is now late. Could it be that this is the desolate place Jesus wanted for them all along? It certainly was the one that the Father wanted for them. Maybe it was exactly what they needed. 
Surely it was. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. It's an unreasonable request. But Jesus, that's half a year's salary. You may recall from the episode with the bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter, that Jesus often puts these gaps into our lives which we can step forward to stretch and grow our trust in him. And here's another such moment. It is meant for their good. Look at verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. But I wonder if the apostles realize they've just been filled. Do you? In this very moment, God is giving you exactly the R&R you need. In a moment, as Simon sings the word of God, it'll be exactly what we need. As we take the Lord's Supper together, we can be filled knowing that Jesus' death is enough and it bonds us together as a family. Do you trust that it's better than pushing the snooze button on your alarm this morning? And then we get this little detail that 12 baskets were left over. I've always taken that as a, as a token of God's abundance grace, and it is, but upon further review, I believe it's actually something, it's nothing less actually than Jesus winking at them saying, I'm giving you exactly what you need for tomorrow too. Exactly what you need. 12 of you, so you get 12 baskets. Here's some breakfast. There's a story about an old man who lived in a small village. He was the poorest man in that village, but he owned the most beautiful white stallion. The king offered him a small fortune for it. After a terribly harsh winter during which the old man and his family nearly starved, the townspeople come to pay this this guy a visit. Old man, they said, you can hardly afford to feed your family. Sell the stallion. The king's offer still stands. You'll be rich. If you don't, you're a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man, keeping what providence had given him. A few months later, the old man woke to find that the white stallion had run away. Once again, the townspeople visited say to him, See, if you'd sold the king your horse, you'd be rich now. Now you got nothing. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, replied the old man. Two weeks later, the white stallion returned along with it. Came three other white stallions. Old man, the townspeople said, we are the fools. Now you can sell your stallion to the king, and you still have three stallions death. What a great return. You're smart. You're wise. It's too early to tell, said the old man, not caring what they thought wise. Following week, the old man's son, his only son, trying to break in one of the stallions, was thrown from it, crushing both his, his legs. The townspeople visited the old man and said, Old man, if you just sold the stallion to the king... You'd be rich, and your son would not be crippled. You are a fool. It is too early to tell, said the old man. Next month, war broke out with a neighboring village. All of the young men in the village were sent into battle, and all were killed. The townspeople came, now now weeping to the old man. We have lost our sons. You are the only smart one, the only wise one who is not. If you had sold your stallion to the king, your son too would be dead. You are so smart and so wise. It's too early to tell, said the old man. And looking up, but did you think I was the one making all these decisions? Let's pray. Father, we want balance in our lives. We want it because we want the good life. We want to make an impact in our life, but we also want to rest satisfied to look back 
to be content. And Father, we are so bad at doing that. We think we can balance our lives on our own and we can regulate this thing called life well, but we know so little. Yet we have a God that we know loves us, who proved it through Jesus Christ and who rose from the dead to let us know that he is both in charge and he is ever good, proving it through the sacrifice that he made. And so we can trust you, Jesus, that whatever you bring our way, it's for our good. It's not an accident, but it's your will. And our food can be the will of him who loved us. Help us change our attitude and believe, start to believe that you are in everything you bring our way, save temptation and sin. You are in, you are in the trials, you are in the difficulties. And you're in the little good things too that we often ignore. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.